Impact on Record is proud to announce that we will be hosting Yale's inaugural Impact Investing Conference, where we will be convening leaders, educators, and pioneers in the impact investing space. We are creating a community of impact. So join us on April 27th to share your perspective and learn more about where the future of impact investing is headed. The conference is sponsored by the International Center for Finance at the Yale School of Management, and we welcome you to join the conversation. To register, please visit IORImpactInvestingConference.com. Welcome to Impact on Record, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into impact investing. We'll bring you the stories about the deal makers, the structure of the deals, and most importantly, the impacted. This podcast is brought to you by The Dreamer. Hello. The Skeptic. Hey. And me, The Realist. On today's episode, we have Andrea Armini. He is a co-founder and executive director of Transform Finance, where they envision a world where capital is a tool for the advancement of real transformative social change. Through thought leadership, trainings, convenings, and the Transform Finance Investor Network, they support all stakeholders from the community leaders and activists to investors and entrepreneurs who are exploring that vision. For more information on Transform Finance, please visit transformfinance.org. And we're going on record in three, two, and... So hello, Andrea. Thank you so much for joining us on um, this episode of Impact on Record. We always, um, we love all of our guests, but we love a little bit more the ones with Yale Connections. So thanks for uh, taking the time. Um, let's start with, you know, could you please take us through your, your background and how you kind of came to co-found Transform Finance? Sure. And thank you, Jenny, for having me on, uh, on this podcast. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, I'm originally from Italy, to the extent that that's relevant to my background. And uh, work-wise, I've always been a bit of a, an activist while working mainly in corporate law and corporate finance. And as I started to look at how one could merge these two disconnected facets of myself, I started looking more into issues of, uh, uh, of social finance, especially on the environmental side in the early days. And, um, and realizing somewhat to my disappointment that there was still a big disconnect between what people were saying we were trying to do with the project of social finance and how communities really seem to be impacted or either neutrally or negatively affected uh, by the project. And I spent some time working with indigenous communities in the Colombian Amazon, uh, who at the time were seeing an influx of projects from um, payment for ecosystem services, carbon credits and the like, and uh, I really didn't seem to think that these projects were going to affect them positively at all, despite the very good intentions of the investors. And I got stuck on that idea and started exploring how one could really reconceive of a finance that would be welcomed by communities that had historically been excluded from it and what the values behind it would be and what it would look like. That's when I was uh, put in touch with Morgan Simon, my co-founder, who at the time was exploring some similar issues as the uh, CEO of uh, Tonic, the early stage impact investor network. And so about four or five years ago, we co-founded uh, Transform Finance, and here we are. And, and so what is the, the stated mission of, of Transform Finance, and you know, what do you focus on specifically? 
Sure. Well, we are a skill building nonprofit organization, and um, we have a very broad mandate, given the name "Transform Finance," you know, that we really view as a as an action word. But we envision capital as a potential tool for real transformative social change. So we start from the premise that capital is but a tool, and it can be used in many different ways. One of them is that it can be marginally from where we've been over the last 100 years or so. But the other is that really it can be a positive force for social change and for social justice. And our stated mission is to advance that agenda through thought leadership, through trainings, advisory services, and our transfer finance investor network. So really playing a supporting role for all the stakeholders ranging from um, investors to activists and community leaders that are also pursuing that vision. And I guess what should people understand about working in the social justice space? And I guess what would you like people to understand more as, you know, as an issue that might be misunderstood about social justice? Hmm, that's, a, that's a really big question, isn't it? Um, well, the thing that I think people should start with is probably the fact that um, finance affects all facets of our lives. And uh, no matter which area of social justice you're interested in, from disability rights to women's reproductive issues, uh, um, there is a finance angle to it. So if you're coming at it from the activist level, I would say you you can't afford to just say, oh, we are the 99% and Wall Street is evil and leave it at that, while the statements might be true in, uh, uh, in the case of, uh, uh, of that activist. Um, I think that that's the starting point and we need to move beyond that and say, okay, well, how then does finance work and how can we reclaim a role in those conversations? How can we turn it on itself for it to be used as a, as a very different tool? And similarly for, for the folks that come at it from the finance angle and say, oh, I want to pursue social justice through finance. Well, social justice is also a body that has uh, uh, knowledge, there's theory behind it that, you know, you can't just say, oh yeah, I love all people and I love social justice and therefore that's what I'm doing. So that there is a, a need to be um, educated about it and to really try to fit the, the finance flank of a social justice agenda within that broader agenda for social change. It can't, uh, it can't just be an outside imposition as we've seen in the past. And can you please share with us like what specific areas of social justice that you're focused on? I think you mentioned a couple of them, but are there any like key sectors or areas that um, that you find uh, others are talking more about and want to hear more about and want more sort of like finance initiatives directed in, in that specific sector? Yeah, I'll give you an example that perhaps will bring some of these uh, threads all together. So this past year, we launched a big uh, project on the intersection of racial justice and finance uh, with support from the Rockefeller Foundation and the Ford Foundation. And uh, the idea there was to say, um, there's certainly a very strong racial justice agenda at the moment in the United States. There is a, a bit of a, a, a moment 
right, where many of these issues, especially in the last uh, um, presidential election, have come to the fore in the way that they were trying to for quite a while. And yet the, the world of finance has still been fairly separated by it. Uh, so the Movement for Black Lives issued a couple of years ago uh, an economic justice agenda uh, for black lives that uh, we thought should really uh, penetrate in some ways the mainstream of the world of finance. Now, to the extent that finance was starting to think about racial justice, it was very much in terms of diversity and inclusion. So, um, you know, representation of people of color on the board uh, of companies or in top management or diversity statistics, which is a part of it, but it's definitely not racial justice, right? You could have Halliburton being completely run by people of color. That doesn't necessarily make it a racially just company. So the project that we're doing is to really explore how finance manifests best itself in racial justice issues and how race is affected by the flows of capital. Um, and going back to the point around like some of the conceptions or misconceptions of social justice around capital, this is not just about driving capital into communities of color. It's not about uh, small business lending to entrepreneurs of color. It's not about venture capital to people of color. It can also be that, and that's an important part that needs to be worked on, but it goes well beyond that. It goes to say municipal finance within, uh, within your fixed income considerations and saying the way in which we finance communities uh, through muni bonds certainly has very strong outcomes, uh, certainly very, very strong impacts on, on communities, and they tend to be desperately negative impacts on, uh, uh, on communities of color. Or you could look at more esoteric issues like uh, excessive share buybacks, for example, in the public equities context, and think of that as a racial justice issue insofar as um, excessive share buybacks tend to take capital um, out of the real economy and into the financialized economy and really concentrate that wealth in the hands of those who have historically had it as investors and therefore perpetuate uh, a racially unjust system of uh, wealth accumulation. Um, so it sounds like you do, you are looking at a share buybacks as one component of the research that you're doing. You know, what else are you looking at? What kind of indicators are you um, focusing on? Because it is, you know, there there are so many dimensions to this um, topic. So it, it, I, it, I wouldn't even know. I wouldn't even know where to where to start. <laughs> no, and uh, uh, rightly so. Because it has turned out to be quite uh, the quite the research project and quite the conceptualization. So, I would say, uh, I mean, share buybacks are really a very very small part of this. It's just one of those things that intuitively people would not necessarily associate with uh, uh, with racial justice, but has a bit of a, a racial justice slant to it. So we. Um, started looking at it, uh, we did a convening of uh, racial justice practitioners this summer to see, first of all, whether there was interest and in this project and a, and a mandate for this uh, finance angle in a broader racial justice agenda, which there seems to be, and started to look with them at what are the um, uh, this, uh, 
just drivers of racial justice or racial injustice in communities of color through the deployment of capital. And you could think of anything from, uh, you know, redlining historically and a lack of access to capital for, for mortgages for families of color. Recently, the way that we've been looking at it has been by picking some categories, um, uh, really like industrial categories, such as uh, retail, apparel, light manufacturing, transportation, and saying, okay, within each of those, what are the determinants of, um, of racial justice and racial injustice? And to a large extent, it turned out that many of them revolve around, uh, in that public equities context, around the quality of jobs. Uh, and uh, low-quality jobs tend to accrue mainly to um, communities of color, in particular to women of uh, color um, in retail, but also beyond. So if I were to look at my portfolio, say that I am a, a foundation with an endowment and I'm trying to advance racial justice and racial equity throughout my foundation, probably the first thing that I would look at would be the quality of jobs among the um, companies that are in my uh, public equities portfolios and say, well, can I move towards a portfolio that is more skewed towards companies that are pursuing uh, high quality jobs, like high road employers? And so you mentioned um, some of the partners working with other nonprofits, but who else are you like, what other com uh, organizations are you sort of aligning yourself with um, to, to build out the research, but also ensure that you're, you're, you're tackling this issue um, in the right way, the right direction, the right form, and getting everyone involved so that they understand what you're trying to, to do? Um, that's still an open issue. And in fact, if anybody listens to this uh, podcast who is interested in this project, they should certainly reach out to us because we're trying to build a broader coalition. So I will say the part that we've tried to do so far with partners such as, uh, um, for example, Center for Social Inclusion and uh, NESRI, the National Economic and Social Rights Initiative, is to even get the right framing for this uh, for this project, precisely because we saw that on the finance side, many people were thinking of it as either diversity and inclusion or direct flows of um, capital into entrepreneurs of color and communities of color. And uh, on the um, uh, on the racial justice practitioner side, we're seeing a little bit of the same uh, uh, of, uh, of the same dynamic on that second line right so people are saying okay well how well, why am i looking at uh, fairly esoteric issues in the broader capital markets if we don't even get a traditional loan you know or if we don't if we can't even get our projects uh, off the ground so uh, we've been uh, we, we've been trying to expand a little bit that um, that agenda to say yes but even if we are able to drive, say, several million dollars into different communities of color, um, that could easily be undone by something like, I don't know, Amazon moving into your city now that they're looking at uh, a new headquarters uh, community and having a major tax break or tax abatement from the municipality that would ultimately affect, again, communities of color negatively, disproportionately so, right? So if you have a, uh, an issue like that, which is being fought at a much bigger level than the 
um, then the small capital flows to entrepreneurs of color. Those are type of things that need to be part of that racial justice analysis of the of the portfolio as well. Um, this this might be a tangent, but it might be related. Uh, so, what is the Transform Finance Investor Network? You know, who are its members, and what what do you seek to accomplish? Sure. Uh, well, one thing that you might have noticed from the little that we've discussed so far is that we really try to bring together uh, the um, the activist community, community leaders, uh, uh, practitioners of different areas of social justice and social change, with the with the players in the in the world of capital and the investor network came about as a community of practice of investors that are exploring some of the same issues as we are. So we think particularly hard about um, issues of community engagement, of um, distributed ownership, issues of governance, of who really benefits from certain types of investments, right? Where does the value really get created and where does it get extracted? Who bears the risk? Who is given agency, and um, from the get-go, when uh, uh, when we launched the network about four years ago, it was around a sense of demand from, uh, in particular, family offices and foundations that were starting to think, okay, impact investing is great, but are we really moving in the direction of transformation? Right? Are we just tweaking a little bit at the margins, or is there something better that we can do? And one of our first members, for example, one of the non-pension funds that in the U.S. have been particularly progressive in this area, came to us and said, hey, we've been investing in affordable housing for 30 years. We're not really sure that we've done anything particularly transformative. In fact, we are concerned that we have contributed to gentrification and displacement. What would it look like to do affordable housing done well? And um, we saw that another couple of families were looking at similar issues. So we thought, well, wouldn't it make sense to bring everybody together into a community where we can discuss these issues, try to frame them and parse them together, and ideally come up with some uh, opportunities to, um, uh, to, to move capital in a different way. So while the network is not just about co-investing or making deals, uh, there is also that opportunity. The idea is to say, let's understand better what we're doing here. Let's bring in some different voices. So again, let's listen to people that are working on um, anti-displacement and gentrification efforts if we're doing affordable housing and see how that can inform our practices. And when we started it out, it was a commitment of about $500 million uh, when we launched in 2014 at the White House, and it's now hovering around $2 billion, which is capital that we don't manage. It's just capital that the, um, the members have committed to moving over time in, this, uh, uh, in accordance with these transformative finance principles. And, and do you think um, that the movement of that capital is easier today than it was even, you know, I guess um, a year ago or a few years ago? Not necessarily, no. I think that there is certainly a lot more interest now. So when we started, it was very much a fringe concept. And now I feel like it's uh, um, the idea of considerations of, uh, of social justice and of equity and of community engagement are coming more to the center of the conversation in impact investing. That doesn't mean that it's 
easier to um, to do in part because we're still trying to figure out what it means to invest in accordance with this value. So we have uh, excellent examples of capital moving in the right way. We have a clearer sense, this is probably true over time, of what does not constitute transformative impact investment. So that part is easier. I still think that as the field generally grows and as more capital comes into it, there is a little bit of a of a flank that is trying to go deeper, and those are the those are the folks that we normally work with, but still remain a small minority of the overall impact investing space for sure. Um, and kind of irrespective of of size, you know, do you have uh, is there an example that you can share with us that you think is is a great example of like catalytic capital or or investing in in the way that you think it should be done well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you one example that I think is, uh, in terms of the bespoke, uh, smaller scale type of investment, is the Buen Vivir Fund, which uh, was an initiative launched by IDEX, now known as Thousand Currents. Uh, IDEX is an organization out in the Bay Area that has been working on uh, um, decolonizing philanthropy, as they call it, for a long time, and really uh, working closely with communities in the global south. Uh, on um, uh, on building agency locally and pursuing uh, participatory philanthropy, participatory grant making, and they started looking at how you should really have uh, you could have also particip- participatory investing if you're serious about this uh, transformation. So the fund was um, was co-designed between the investors and the investees, and this is something that I've never seen before, where the LPs committed their capital to the fund even before knowing what the terms would be on the theory that if we really mean for this capital to be at the service of the communities, those communities should be involved in uh, the process of setting those terms. So we spent uh, five days together with the LPs and with the um, uh, prospective investees from the relevant communities ranging from uh, Mexico, from women's groups in Guatemala, South Africa, uh, Nepal, um, to to design these terms of a fund together. So that's really something that is fairly transformative, right? Uh, the the idea that the investors are not dictating the terms, but this is a a, a shared process between investors and investees. Yeah, that certainly does sound like a very unique experience, at least from from the more conventional things that I hear. So that's fantastic. Um, on a separate note, so you're currently teaching a course at NYU's Wagner Graduate School of Public Service um, on the intersection of finance and social justice. You know, what does that look like and why, you know, you're certainly very busy and I know you travel a lot. So why is it important to you to go and teach? Well, uh, in part, I really enjoy the teaching aspect, and there is a, a, a selfish element of it that precisely because of all the travel and all the work, I don't often get a chance to sit down and try to organize my thoughts around this thing. So really, the the, the students are the, <laughs> are the guinea pigs for, for my effort to organize this into a more coherent body of thought. But my uh, my 
effort and really the energy behind this when uh, uh, Professor Scott Titel, who runs the program at Wagner, asked me to participate with a course and really design an, a new course that had not been offered before on, uh, on finance and social justice, was to say, I think that there's still a lot of misconceptions around who, per, who pursues finance and who pursues social justice. And I think that that kind of self-selection into you know, the do-gooders going to social justice and the ones that don't care going to finance is part of the problem that has gotten us to where we are now, right? With the disconnect and, uh, oh, if I'm an activist, I cannot be at, a, at an asset manager. And, uh, and I think that you can really do your bed for social justice regardless of where you're sitting, right? It is a continuum. It is not a matter of purity. So I think that it's important to have... Um, activists working anywhere from, you know, CalPERS to Goldman Sachs, and it's important to have finance people that are part of the uh, of the more activist movement. So this course is really an attempt to break down that false dichotomy between the two um, between the two sides, and try to explore with the students into uh, who are you know masters level, and so they have a fair bit of experience themselves. So to explore with them where are some of these non-obvious intersections where you can advance a social justice agenda in the uh, in the world of finance and how that might differ from either other forms of activism or from kind of ESG type of investing that, while super positive, is still not the same as pursuing social justice in finance. Ellie, you should be on campus teaching us, too. I know. I know. I'm, I'm feeling on? a little envious. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully we can get you on well, campus you know, I, I co-taught with the late professor Jan Deutsch in the law school, a course called Law, Power, and Capitalist Democracy. And I haven't been invited back since then, so maybe that's a bit of an issue. Well, we, we're inviting you. Well, at the School of Management, yes. you're welcome. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> well, what are some of the topics of conversation that you're having today with your peers about social justice and this amazing area of focus? So there are a, a, a few big things that are that, that are really coming up. I think one of the issues is scale and speed. So I mentioned the Buenvivier Fund, which is this spectacular opportunity, but it's also a tiny, tiny fund that is probably not even easily, um, uh, it's not easily scalable and it's not easily replicable either. So one of the big topics right now is, can we really start scaling and making a dent uh, while still getting it right, right? Can you scale the impact at the same time as you are scaling the amount of capital seems to be one of the big issues that keeps coming up in uh, in conversations. and um, and perhaps very much connected to that is the issue of how to operationalize this principle. So can we systematize these ideas of community engagement and of non-extractiveness? Can we make sure there's something that goes beyond this small club of, uh, of investors and others can replicate according to their own slightly different variations of it? Some folks are talking about it in terms of regenerative finance, for example. So. Uh, what would it look like for this to really become a, a, a major collaborative force within the within the field of finance, 
and affect uh, uh, and impact more capital without losing that, uh, uh, without losing the richness. And the other topic that is coming up a lot, um, not to put a depressive note on uh, on all this, is are we really making a dent, or are we just rearranging the chairs uh, on the on the deck of the Titanic? Um, because it seems like the forces that are that are at play in the economy in politics are are just so massively skewed against everything that we're talking about, and we're really playing this uh, this small game in a in a corner. And you know, I'm still doing this job, so I think it's because yes, there is hope that we will make a dent, and this is um, and this is meaningful work. And I feel like more and more people from both from within the existing space of finance and from uh, um, uh, like new folks that are coming in either as new holders of wealth or new practitioners are asking some of these tough questions. Uh, uh, so I, I'm kind of confident that over time we'll be moving in the in the right direction, but this is definitely not something that uh, um, we can't say that we've won on any of the uh, of the major fronts yet. Can you uh, explain what you mean by regenerative regenerative capital? Uh, well, you should probably uh, invite on your on another podcast one of the uh, one of the folks that are working on that. But I think so. We we talk about it as this idea of capital being uh, community centered and uh, uh, leaving more value in communities than what it takes out. My understanding of the notion behind regenerative capital is that you can move from these uh, extractive and destructive forms of capitalism to one that is much more rooted in regeneration of people, of place, of the environment. And I'm not very clear on the specifics, but it's definitely a, a very appealing and complementary notion to ours, I, I believe, right? That again, you, it goes back to the framework of using capital as a tool, and in this case, as a tool for regeneration. So not just avoiding the bad, but really rebuilding the good through a different way of, uh, of using finance. So it seems like there's a lot to sort of like work towards. There's still a lot of issues that, you know, still need a, there's a lot of progress to be made within the space. But I guess, what are you most excited about? Like what, what wakes you up in the morning? It keeps you going and that you look forward to in terms of the future. Well, perhaps it is this, uh, the sense that, you know, while, while it is a, a big challenge still, it is a, a worthwhile one to, to fight. I think that because I believe in the power of finance, um, I believe in what we're, in what we're doing. And uh, just because it is hard and, uh, and it's a bit of a slog doesn't mean that we should be, that we should be getting up on it. Right now, I would say um, a couple of the, seeing the concrete progress on some of the projects that we've been working on for a while is really what keeps me super excited. And, you know, I'll give you a couple of examples. We've been, working for a few years on this idea of uh, conversions to employee ownership for um, for many of the businesses that are soon going to be in a succession context here in the United States with all the baby boomers retiring. There's something that Dowie and Project Equity have been working on for a while. And recently we got a mandate to 
design um, an investment vehicle, something akin to a private equity fund that could foster employee ownership at scale. So take a lot of these um, companies in, a, in succession and uh, turn them into uh, uh, employee-owned companies. Something like that gets me excited because uh, of a few reasons. One is that it Again, it can preserve that depth of the impact, as I was saying before, while getting at scale, um, but also because it moves us away a little bit from that fetishization of impact investing in a kind of a aesthetic sense around uh, things that are, you know, um, tied to solar lamps or to ethical fashion or whatever. And it goes down instead to the um, to the real impact on communities. So if you have, I don't know, a, a lumber mill in Appalachia that is at risk of being shut down and gets converted to, instead of being shut down to an employee-owned company, that to me is great impact. And it can appeal to a lot of people that would otherwise not be interested in, in impact investing as this weird progressive subfield, right? It, because it just appeals to um, to fundamental notions of what is your duty as a business owner to your community, uh, what could your legacy be in that community, what does it mean to care for the well-being of workers, and uh, uh, and as such, it, it can have a much broader appeal than what we've seen uh, than what we've seen so far. So those are some of the things that are exciting me right now. Well, we would love to catch up with you at some point and get an update on these exciting initiatives um, because they, they really sound needed and also, you know, a um, a energetic injection to kind of what um, people are more commonly doing here, here and there. Um, so thank you so much again for joining us today. We really enjoyed the conversation. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. I look forward to visiting you at some point. Wonderful. Impact on Record is a podcast about impact investing. If you'd like to hear more, visit iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out impactonrecord.com. There you can learn more about our guests and the Impact on Record trio. If you haven't heard it here, it's not on record. Impact on Record is proud to announce that we will be hosting Yale's inaugural Impact Investing Conference, where we will be convening leaders, educators, and pioneers in the impact investing space. We are creating a community of impact. So join us on April 27th to share your perspective and learn more about where the future of impact investing is headed. The conference is sponsored by the International Center for Finance at the Yale School of Management, and we welcome you to join the conversation. To register, please visit IORImpactInvestingConference.com.